Jeremiah chapter 15. But before we enter into our study, let's, let's do pray and let's pray for Athensia and anyone else that we may remember in our hearts to lift up in our hearts to the Lord this evening. Father, we come this evening to lift up the precious name of Jesus Christ above every name. And it's our desire, Lord, that in doing so, we will be especially attentive to your word as we desire to learn and to grow in your grace and knowledge. And as we are living in these last days, Lord, that everything that we read, especially in the prophets, is to our greater understanding of where we are today where this world is today and where we are in light of the return of Jesus Christ. So we pray, Father, for your help in in helping us to focus our attention on these things and to take them seriously and to take them, Lord, uh, to heart, but never to take them for granted. And this we ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us so that that will not happen. That you will fill us and and anoint and bless us with your spirit for your wisdom and for your knowledge to truly speak to our hearts. We pray, Father, this evening for our sister Hortensia. Lord, uh, first of all, we pray that you will be with her and... uh, and certainly touch her and heal her, Lord, if there, if there be any problems whatsoever with her heart. We would ask you, Lord God, to protect her and keep her and watch over her. And her kids, Lord, I know that are especially concerned for her today. We pray, Father, that uh, she will first and foremost trust in you. And then, Lord God, to pray that, uh, Lord, as you allow her to... Uh, gain treatment and all uh, physically and medically that uh, that this will only help her and uh, if anything that it will come to bring uh, an understanding to the doctors and those medical personnel who are working with her that you're a God that still heals today. So Father that's what we pray for. We pray for your healing upon Hortensia and all those tonight who are going through any physical trials and and battles, uh, we ask, Father God, your continued hand of blessing upon them. Now, Lord, just allow us to understand your word and bring it to our heart's understanding. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Jeremiah 15, let me read verses 1 through 4 before we begin. The word then there in verse 1, of course, tells us that there really is a continuation from what we read and studied last week. And so when it comes to chapter uh, divisions and all, this is probably better to, to read through 14 and into 15, almost as if it's one chapter. So Jeremiah says in verse 1, Then the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. 
And it shall be if they say to you, where should we go? Then you shall tell them, thus says the Lord, such as are for death to death, and such as are for the sword to the sword, and such as are for the famine to the famine, and such as are for the captivity to the captivity. And I will appoint over them four forms of destruction, says the Lord. The sword to slay, the dogs to drag, the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. I will hand them over to trouble, to all kingdoms of the earth, because of Manasseh the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. I was reading a sermon that was supposedly based on this particular passage of scripture, the whole chapter 15 of Jeremiah. And uh, it was really somewhat of a topical sermon, but nonetheless, uh, this pastor was, was preaching about the fact that if America is not too uh, careful or uh, is not watching and not paying attention, that uh, one day God will be as a stranger to America. I thought that that was an interesting thought and, a, and, and, and kind of an interesting uh, way of looking at things. That, that someday God would be as a stranger to this land. I think that if you see what's going on in the world today, especially in America, especially in our government and, and uh, this tremendous battle that's going on, Though it's political in many ways, nonetheless, it is really, there is this tremendous undercurrent of, of, uh, of a battle that is really spiritual, that is moral, that is uh, uh, dealing with all of the, the, the things that are decaying in this country. And, uh, and if it awakens anyone, it should awaken the church. Because if, if anything, the church of Jesus Christ is the last hope for this country. But if the church goes the way of the world, then the only thing that we have left to say before the rapture of the church is that God will be as a stranger to our country. And in the time of Jeremiah, God was as a stranger to all of Israel. And in particular, God was as a stranger to Judah, the southern kingdom, the kingdom that Jeremiah was called to preach to. And if you remember from our last study, Jeremiah the prophet himself was a very broken and a broken-hearted man who truly wanted to go to the Lord God of Israel in prayer on behalf of his people, the children of Judah. And the message that he had been preaching to them had caused him to weep. And it was a message from the Lord. For God wanted the people to know that his heart was breaking as well. That was the message. I am your God and my heart is breaking over you because of what you have done and what you are doing as far as your sin is concerned. And Jeremiah was not only giving the message from God, you see, but he was expressing the feelings of God 
as well to the people of Judah. Go back, if you will, just to uh, verse 17 of the last chapter, Jeremiah 14. And remember this statement, Therefore you shall say this word to them, God telling Jeremiah to tell the people, Let my eyes flow with tears night and day, and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people has been broken with a mighty stroke, with a very severe blow. Those are the expressions of God's heart toward the people of Judah. Let my eyes flow with tears day and night. It is an awesome thought, and I don't use the word awesome to say it's a great thing in the sense of what we would consider great, but awesome in the sense of its awfulness, the full of awe that we are to have when we think of God. But I think of this awesome thought of God weeping over His own people. Even with God being sovereign and God being providential and God knowing the beginning from the end, it lets us know the kind of heart that God has for His people. It lets us know about the compassion that God has for His people. The passion that He pours out each and every day to each one who loves Him. Or should love him. And as much then as Jeremiah himself, who wanted to have that same kind of heart, and he did, he, yet he, he wasn't like, you know, as, as close to God as, 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 uh, as he would have wanted to have been as far as his feelings for Israel and for Judah, but, but nonetheless he had it more than anybody else at his time. That feeling, that heart, that passion, that compassion, that pain, that grieving, that mourning for Israel. And as much as Jeremiah wanted to continue to pray for his people, and the Lord would tell him to cease from praying to them, or for them, because of his own brokenness, the prophet would have to hear God's direct and significant word to his heart. And that's verse 1 of Jeremiah 15. When he says, the Lord then said to me, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. And he's reemphasizing to him, don't pray for them anymore. Because even if the greatest intercessors of Israel were to pray, I would not be favorable to them still. And it's interesting that the Lord would mention Moses, one of the great intercessors in the Scriptures, to Jeremiah as he assures the prophet that even if two of Israel's most effective intercessors stood before him to plead for the people, they would not change his mind about bringing judgment upon Judah. They would not change his mind. You see, before the Israelites even entered the Promised Land, Moses had gone over the terms of the covenant with them with great warning that if they refused to obey God, He would remove them from the land. I know I've told you to go to Deuteronomy 28 many times in the last few weeks, but let's do it again. Deuteronomy 28. But this time, go down toward the end of the chapter, and in verses 63 through 68. Notice what is being said here. As Moses speaks to the people, And it shall be that just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you, uh, to do you good and multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you to nothing. And you shall be plucked from off the land which you go to possess. 
And then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Wood and stone. And among those nations you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and anguish of soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. You shall fear day and night and have no assurance of life. And folks, let me stop there for just a moment because I have to tell you that when he's telling them this, he's not telling them this as if he's taking away things from them more than that he is, sh- tell- he is showing them what the consequences are of them taking their eyes off of God. Because he has given them everything. Everything that they've needed, he's given to them. But now notice what he says. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. You shall fear day and night and have no assurance of life. In the morning you shall say, oh, that it were evening. And at evening you shall say, oh, that it were morning because of the fear which terrifies your heart. And because of the sight which your eyes see. And the Lord will take you back to Egypt in ships by the way of which I said to you, you shall never see it again. And I just want to mention that the mention of Egypt here is not so much going back to the land of Egypt as it was to go back into captivity. And then he goes on and says, And there you shall be offered for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but no one will buy you. It's a very sad thought. But not many years ago, in comparison to the thousands of years that we're talking about between now and Jeremiah's time, but not many years ago, when Jews were trying to gather and come out of European and and, and Asian nations to flock to the land of Israel, or the land what was called Palestine back then. There were times that uh, they would get onto boats and and they would be rejected from going into the land, or else they would they would try to dock in other in other countries, and they wouldn't allow them. And it's interesting that many Jews died in 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 the course of their exodus from the world back to their land. This is almost really what what it's saying here. No one will buy you. No one wants you. And as soon as Joshua and that generation of leaders passed from this life, the nation turned to idolatry. After they got the warnings from Moses, they turned to idolatry and thus began the process of chastisement upon God's people in the land. Now, in the land, this is very important. The process began that they were being chastised or punished in the land. Go to the book of Judges. This is all significant to where we're going in chapter 15. So this is why we're setting this this particular foundation for you. But in Judges chapter 2, not long after Joshua's generation, 
Judges chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, it says, So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him within the, borders, uh, the border of his inheritance at Tinmuth Harris in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaash. When all the generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose. And notice how sad this is. Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which He had done for Israel. So they did not know the Lord personally, nor did they know what God had done for the generation previous to them. That's pretty sad. Because either the people who, was the, who were the generation before did not share with them or did not proclaim to them this God or this new generation didn't listen and didn't receive the message of the God that rescued Israel from captivity. How sad that is. And notice verse 11, Then the children of Israel did evil, in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals or the Baals, the gods of their enemies. But continue on, because it says, And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who, all, who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And notice verse 14. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. This is all in the land, okay? It's in the land. So he delivered them into the hand of plunders who despoiled them and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. And wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. But they were distressed where? They were distressed in the land. God had brought them to the promised land and they said, if you'll obey me, you'll get all the land and you'll get all the benefits of the land. All the stuff that's flowing, like milk and honey, it's all yours. But if you disobey me, I'll judge you. And God began to punish them within the land. And in the book of Judges, you see a continuing pattern, or a cycle, as it were, of Israel's unfaithfulness. And here's the pattern. First of all, there was sin. And that you find in Judges 2.11. We already read that in verse 11. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And then you'll notice slavery. The next step in this cycle was slavery. And that's verse 14. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of the plunders and spoiled them. And, and he sold them into their hands of their enemies all around, so they could no longer stand before their enemies. But they're still in the land. Please understand. Sin led to slavery. What did that slavery do? It led to them... Praying to God, crying out to God. That's supplication. And there in verse 18, which we didn't read, but let me read it to you. When the Lord raised up judges for them. You see, that's the importance of the understanding of judges here. 
That God raised up judges who, and delivered them out of the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. So, uh, even though this verse comes later, it, it's telling us that they had to cry out to God for deliverance. And the, the judge that God raised up for them would be the one who would go out and, 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 uh, and lead them out of this captivity. And then would come salvation. And verse 16 says, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. That was significant of salvation for the nation. So again, look at the, look at the, 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 the cycle, the progression. Sin led to slavery, which caused them to cry out to God in supplication. And God would answer them and give them a, a judge who would deliver them. And this happened time and time and time again. When you read through the whole book of Judges, which you ought to be doing pretty soon if you're in your daily reading of the Bible. I should be there already, or maybe you're almost there. But when you get there and you read through, note every time you see when this pattern or this cycle happens. Sin, slavery, supplication, and salvation. So now think of this. This is after, jo- this is after uh, Joshua. But by Jeremiah's time, the people's sins have become so great that the Lord had to remove them from the land. So they were judged in the land, but it got so bad, even though, even though God was judging them, they weren't paying attention. That God would eventually have to judge them and remove them from the land and punish them now in Babylon. And so even if the two great intercessors, Moses and Samuel, who both prayed for God to turn away His wrath from the people, were to seek His face for Judah, their pleadings would be ineffective. Judgment was still coming, you see. And He would still drive the guilty from His presence. And should the people ask where they would be going, the prophet was to answer in this manner. Look at verse 2 now of Jeremiah 15. And it shall be if they say to you, where should we go? Then you shall tell them. Thus says the Lord, such as are for death to death, and such as are for the sword to the sword, as such as are for the famine to the famine, and such as are for the captivity to the captivity. Jeremiah was to tell them that each was to go to their appointed judgment. Death, which also means, by the way, pestilence. Death or pestilence, the sword or war, famine or starvation, or if they survive these catastrophes, captivity, exile in Babylon. Some would, would die because of all of the pestilence in the land. Some would die from the, from the sword. Some will die from starvation. And the rest would go into captivity. And subsequent to this, in other words, following this, there would be assigned four destroyers of his people. Verse 3 now. And I will appoint over them four forms of destruction, says the Lord. The sword to slay, the dogs to drag, the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. And you think, why is God doing this? But if you've been with us long enough, you realize 
Why didn't they listen to God? Why didn't they pay attention to the Lord? The bodies of those killed by the Babylonians would be desecrated. In other words, they would be damaged, they would be defiled, and eventually eaten by dogs, birds, and wild beasts. And I have to tell you that not one of them would have a decent burial. And this was a shameful thing to the Jewish people. And it still is today. Is it any wonder that the Israeli defense forces, the, the Israeli army, when they lose someone in battle, they want the remains so that they can give them the proper burial. And it's a shame to Israel when their enemies disregard it. Sometimes they'll go into a nation to bring their people back. Because it's a shameful thing. And I think you have to understand through the mindset because we're dealing with the fact that if, if anything they've learned from God, it is that God came to give life and not death. Death only comes as a consequence to sin. But God is not about death. He's about life. As bleak as this future was for them, it was a future that they had chosen for themselves. And this is the problem. It was a future that they had chosen for themselves by refusing to repent of their sins. God had chosen His people to be a blessing to the nations of the world. Genesis 12, verses 1-3. through The Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I can say this about America today, about the United States. For the longest time, we have been the best, the biggest, and greatest supporters of the nation and the state of Israel. And because of all of that, we have been blessed. But where is that going to go if we turn our backs on God's people? Whether they're listening to God or not, because God didn't put that, you know, God didn't put that uh, uh, amendment there. God wants us to care for His people. Those who bless you, I will bless. He doesn't say, I will bless those who bless you if you stay obedient to me. He says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I know I've given you some scriptures in the book of Zechariah that, that tell us that all nations will go against Israel, which doesn't, make, <laughs> doesn't give us a lot of hope here. That's why we have to continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's what the psalmist told us to do. But God had chosen His people to be a blessing to the nations of the world, but now they would become an object of horror. They would become an object of terror and even an object of trouble to all the kingdoms of the earth. And this is what we see in verse 4 of our text. I will hand them over to trouble to all kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh. Now He gives us a reason. Here's an interesting reason too. 
Because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. Well, what did Manasseh do in Jerusalem? By the way, this was even predicted back in Deuteronomy and in the Psalms. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 25, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall become troublesome to all the kings of the earth. So there was even that prophecy that said, You're going to be trouble to the kings of the earth. The psalmist said the same thing in Psalm 44, verse 14. You make us a byword. By the way, just simply a byword is a nice way of saying a joke. Or as some other translation says, the butt of a joke. You make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the head among the peoples. By the way, a shaking of the head is a laughing stock. You make us a joke among the nations and a laughing stock among the peoples. If, there, if the psalmist is saying that to God, <laughs> then, of course, you know, the, the, the point is there. It wasn't God, it was the people who made themselves that because they disobeyed the Lord. But the reason that is given to us here in our text is that of King Manasseh, considered to be the most wicked king in Judah's history. There were a lot of good kings, but Manasseh was one of the worst. As a matter of fact, he was the worst the most wicked king in Judah's history. Let me give you a little bit of a, an understanding of this. In 2 Chronicles chapter 33, we're going to this because, because he's mentioned as the problem here. Manasseh was 12 years old, it says in verse 1, 2 Chronicles 33. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Now if you just stop there, you think, wow, a 12-year-old, you know, a pre-teen is the king of Israel. But I want you to read verse 2. But he did what? He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. As you read on through verses 3 through 5, you realize that he made the places of worship, he built, they built the idols, and, and all of that. Okay? It would just jump down to verse 6. Notice how progressively worse he becomes. Also, he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. What was that? He sacrificed his own children to fire. And more than likely, the fires of Molech. And what else did he do? He practiced soothsaying. Used witchcraft and sorcery. If he had lived in our day, he would have probably called the psychic hotline. Dion Warwick. She doesn't do that anymore, does she? I don't know. Years ago, Dionne Warwick used to do these commercials, you know, infomercials for the psychic hotline. And I used to think, how could Dionne Warwick, you know, what does she need psychics for? You know, you know she was always used to sing the song, Do You Know the Way to San Jose? Well, if you're a psychic, then what are you asking if we know the way to San Jose? You should know already. Or look on a map. Whatever. Yeah, I don't know how I got into that. The way let's go on. He practiced soothsay and used witchcraft and sorcery, consulted mediums and spiritists. I mean, this guy is going downhill faster than you could imagine. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord. He, first of all, he started doing evil. Now he did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image. Notice this. He set a carved image, the idol which he had made, in the house of God. 
of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever and I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hands of Moses. Or by the hand of Moses. And what did he do? He became, he became kind of a, a forerunner to Antichrist. A place is a, an abomination in the temple. And so Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of, these, of Israel. How much, more can you, how much more evil can you get? You begin by being evil, you become much more evil, and then you become more evil than even the nations that were destroyed by God for their evil. So how evil is that? That's pretty evil, I think. I, th- I think we got the point, didn't we? And the sad part of this whole story is that Manasseh was the son of one of Judah's most godly kings. He was the son of Hezekiah, and he was the grandfather of godly King Josiah. So on either side of him were good kings. Well, what happened to him? And I've got to interject another part of the story here. His father Hezekiah was once approached by Isaiah the prophet. And Isaiah the prophet came to him with a message from God that said, get your house in order because you're going to die. Get your house in order because you're going to die. I like what one person said. He took it like a man and he cried like a, he cried like a baby. He received it, but then he just started crying and crying out to God. Oh, God, you know, I want to die. Give me life. Give me more life. And as Isaiah's leaving, God tells Isaiah, go back in there and tell him I'll give him 15 more years. Three years after this happens, Manasseh is born. Think about that. Hezekiah really doesn't, in those 15 years, really live right. A.W. Tozer talks about this, and he, he says, you know, if, if, God, if, if God is going to give me 15 years, I better live those 15 years for God. Because if not, then take me now, Lord. Hezekiah cried for more life. Gave him 15 years. What will you do with the life God gives you, you see? Within those 15 years, the worst king of of Judah was born. Twelve years later, he became king. And, well, we just read the story. It's important to understand that the Lord wasn't punishing Judah for the sins committed by Manasseh, but because Judah imitated the wicked king in their sinning. That's why they're being judged. They're not being judged because of Manasseh's sins. They're being judged because they imitated all of his sins. And And in effect, rejected God and would not repent. So this is why that's in there. This led the Lord to lament 
The Lord laments over Judah's suffering because of their disobedience. Let's read verses 5 through 9. For who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will bemoan you? Or who will turn aside to ask how you're doing? You have forsaken me, says the Lord. You've gone backward. Therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I, I'm weary of relenting. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm weary of just time and time again, just, you know, you come and you cry, and then I say, okay, I'll, I'll bless you, okay. Then, then you sin again. Then I, I'm just weary of that. I'm not going to do that anymore. And I will winnow them with a winnowing fan in the gates of the land. I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people since they do not return from their ways. Their widows will be increased to me more than the sand of the seas. I will bring against them, against the mother of the young men, a plunder at noonday. I will cause anger and terror to fall on them suddenly. She languishes who has borne seven. In other words, she, she's weakened by, by bearing seven children. She has breathed her last. Her son has gone down while it was yet day. She has been ashamed and confounded. And the remnant of them I will deliver to the sword before their enemies, says the Lord. A few things need to be understood about the Lord in this passage. First of all, the Lord had been very patient, even extremely long-suffering with His people. And let's face it, He could have wiped them out a lot sooner, but He didn't. Judgment, though, was now coming. Secondly, we mustn't think that the Lord enjoyed or delighted in sending judgment upon His people. I want you to remember these words in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 18, verse 23. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? Do I have any pleasure at all? He doesn't. For he says in Ezekiel 18, 32, For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore turn and live. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, God says, but that they would turn, turn to Him and live. And if God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, He certainly has no pleasure in the death of His own people. God is patient, but when His people resist His call to repentance and rebel against His will, He has no alternative but to send His chastisement. And who would have pity on Jerusalem when she had experienced his judgment? Who would have pity on them? He says the city had forsaken her Lord God. It had regressed. In other words, it had lost ground rather than advanced morally and spiritually. Who would have pity on Jerusalem? May I tell you of one person that did? Jesus. Jesus had pity on Jerusalem. Because before Jesus goes to the cross, he wept over Jerusalem. Prophets, Nehemiah, they had pity, but not like Jesus had. The very city that was to be his shining jewel among all the nations. So the people would be scattered. 
As when a farmer winnows his grain by throwing it up to the wind that blows the chaff away. Widows would mourn the deaths of their sons while continuing on barely breathing. Their rejoicing would end with no heirs or comforters for their old age. In other words, the future of her family would be destroyed. At this point, Jeremiah reacts to the Lord's message. And in verse 10, Jeremiah says, Woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me. A man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I have neither lent for interest nor have men lent to me for interest. Every one of them curses me. In other words, I haven't entered into some kind of negotiations with people to lend them money or, or to receive money from them or whatever. Uh, it was a common thing in those days. It brought people together, tied them together. But here he says, we've not done any of them, but every one of them curses me. The Lord said, surely it will be well with your remnant. Surely I will cause the enemy to intercede with you in the time of adversity, in the time of, afflict, of affliction. And if the widowed mothers of the dead soldiers had reason to mourn and lament, Jeremiah's mother had all the more reason. Because the people were treating him as though he were the enemy. That's what, he, that's what he's expressing to God. I might as well have not been born. My mother, my mother didn't have to go through the trials and the labors of, 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 of childbirth if this is what the end result was going to be. That the people were going to treat him as though he were the enemy, being God's prophet. And Jeremiah was only telling the people what God wanted him to say. And they hated him for that. And so he's saying that he didn't deserve that kind of treatment. But folks, stop there for just a moment and think about this. What people are doing with God's Word today. When God has called us to preach the Word, to teach the Word, to be ready in season and out of season, not to neglect teaching the whole counsel of God, when people will take God's Word and say, you know, I don't want to teach that because it, didn't, it doesn't sound encouraging or it doesn't sound like it's going to help anybody. It's just going to put people down or make them feel depressed. I'll just teach them all the good stuff and tell them that they're going to, you know, be, they should be prosperous because they're God's children and all and all and all and all. And you're not helping anybody see the full nature of God. The very fact that in all of His nature He is a God of love, mercy, grace, and truth. But we all struggle. We all struggle in preaching God's Word to the full extent of what the Word of God says. But we have to do it. But Jeremiah, at this point, is kind of saying, I, I don't really deserve this kind of treatment. But the Lord answered him. The Lord answered him by assuring him of, of acquittal. Those who had been his enemies would plead with him when the times of distress finally arrived. In other words, Jeremiah would emerge from this catastrophe as a tower of strength. Notice the last part there of verse 11. The Lord said, surely it will be well with your remnant. Surely I will cause the enemy to intercede with you in the time of adversity, in the time of affliction. You will still be that tower of strength. And then, and then God says this to Jeremiah. He says, can anyone break iron? The northern iron and the bronze, speaking of the enemy that was coming. 
Your wealth and your treasures I will give as plunder without price because of all your sins throughout your territories and I will make you cross over with your enemies into a land which you do not know for a fire is kindled in my anger which shall burn upon you. And, and there he's speaking really to, the, to, the, uh, to the, Ju- uh, the people of Judah. But the enemy from the north would be impossible to defeat because they would be as strong as iron or brass. So what Jeremiah had been preaching would indeed come to pass. Add to that that the Lord would hand over the wealth of Judah to the enemy freely as, a war, as war plunder because of her sins. They would be enslaved by the Babylonians and deported to a land that they were unfamiliar with, all because of the Lord's anger with his people. And then Jeremiah would speak to the Lord. And he would say, Oh Lord, you know. And by the way, let me, let me clarify something, going back to verse 12. Can anyone break iron, the northern iron, or the bronze? Of course not. They were, Babylon was going to come. They, they couldn't be able to destroy it. So getting the thoughts back on what God is saying to the, about the people. I'll talk about Jeremiah in just a moment. But here Jeremiah speaks and he says, Oh Lord, you know. He says, Remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your enduring patience, do not take me away. Know that for your sake I have suffered rebuke. Your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. A great verse of scripture, by the way. But then he says, I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand, for you have filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream as waters that fail? In essence, he's practically calling God a liar. And here we see the turmoil that was in Jeremiah's heart and mind. One moment he is confirming God's patience and his own faithfulness to God's word. With another breath, he's crying out with pain for the suffering of his people and the troubled complexity of his work and his calling. But verse 16 is a significant statement by Jeremiah. I want you to look at it. Verse 16. Your words were found and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. It's important to note that the law of God had been lost for some 60 to 70 years. And during the reign of Manasseh, the temple was just a storage dump for Judah's idols. And the word of God was covered up by them. And then during the spiritual reforms of Josiah, the king commissioned the temple to be cleaned up. And as they began the project, Hilkiah, Jeremiah's father, found a copy of the law of God. And as Jeremiah, I should say, as Josiah read it, He tore his clothes and he wept because he realized how much they had transgressed God's law. And Jeremiah was a young man when the law was found. And he tells us that as he digested the word of God, and listen carefully, as he digested the word of God, it brought joy to his heart. Too often today, we take God's word for granted. Too often we're taking God's word for granted. 
We can go into most bookstores and purchase all kinds of Bibles. But the thing we must ask ourselves is this. Does God's Word still bring us the joy, that joy, that it did when we first believed? I want you to listen to the words of Jesus. When He speaks to the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation chapter 2. Because the answer is here. The answer to the question is, or the answer to the question, the question being, does God's word still bring us joy? And what can we do if it doesn't? Jesus said in Revelation 2, verse 2, I know your works. Again, speaking to the church of Ephesus, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you've persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, he says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now let me apply that first love not only to your love for Christ, but your love for Christ's word, your love for God's word. Don't forget that Jesus is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Logos, that's Jesus. And he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You are a machine. You are an organization, Church of Ephesus, but you've left your first love. You're an organization, but you're not an organism. God did not create the church to be an organization. He created us to be a living body of Christ. And he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the first works. You see, the word of God is not the problem. The word of God is not the problem. The problem is we who have taken God's word for granted. And when we take God's word for granted, we no longer have the joy of the Lord in our hearts. That's not God's fault. It's not his word's fault. It is not his teacher's fault if his his teachers are teaching the word. He says, you repent and you do your first works. You come back to me and to my word. Or else, he says, and this is Jesus speaking in the New Testament, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. What a powerful statement. All throughout Psalm 119 in the Old Testament, you can find many verses. I'll give you just one small verse. Psalm 119, verse 14. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. As much as in all riches. Is the joy of the Lord your strength? It is because of God's word. Not because of any riches that we may have. The psalmist who was rich beyond his imagination said, I've rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. Which literally means more than your riches. 
So in verse 18, going back to our text, in Jeremiah 15, in verse 18 of our text, Jeremiah charges the Lord foolishly by saying that he can't trust God because he's unreliable. And let me say this, at least he's honest with God. And the Lord is certainly able to handle that. God is able to handle our honesty with him. Many times people have family or friends that die and they say, why God? God can handle that question if you ask it sincerely and honestly. When we struggle with things that happen because of the Lord in our lives or because of us in God's life, you know, if, if we're honest with God, he, he can handle honesty. But be thankful that God deals differently with those who, will, who willfully reject Him than He does with those who just pour their hearts out to Him. He's not going to handle us the same as He will when He truly judges those who have left Him willfully. So the Lord didn't destroy Jeremiah. That's the point I'm trying to make. The Lord didn't destroy Jeremiah, but this is his response to the prophet. And listen to what he says to Jeremiah. Verses 19 through 21. Therefore, thus says the Lord, speaking to the prophet, if you return, what's he saying to him? You need to turn. You need to repent. But if you turn or return, then I will bring you back. And you shall stand before me. If you take out the precious from the vial, you shall be as my mouth. In other words, separate yourself from the hard attitude of the wicked. And you'll be my mouth. Let them return to you, but you must not return to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified bronze wall. Instead of Babylon just being that bronze uh, wall, as it were, here, Jeremiah will be. I will make you to this people a fortified bronze wall, and they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you. God's promise of being with his servant. I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem you from the grip of the terrible. In simple terms, God is telling Jeremiah to repent and to turn to him. And when he does these things, not to go back to the people, whether it be to go back to their attitudes or to their ways. But he says, let them come to you. And then he is to speak the word of God to them. Take out the precious from the vial. Separate the precious He's using the terms of, 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 of one who, who works with metals, precious metals. When put to the fire, you have to take the precious away from the dross. He says, take the precious from the vial. And if he doesn't do this, God couldn't use him. God will use us when we allow him to purify us, cleanse us. The fire that the God uses is not a fire to destroy, it is a fire to temper, to temper us, to shape us, to mold us, 
to make us what He wants us to be. And then the Lord tells him that it's not going to be easy. But if he draws close to him, he will strengthen Jeremiah to the extent that he will be as indestructible as a bronze wall. You see, the Lord will not exempt us from difficult, perilous and trying times. But he will give us grace to go through those times. Let me leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul. Given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58. We'll close with this. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Jeremiah needed to know from God that his labor was not in vain, but he needed to get his heart right. In certain terms, God was tweaking Jeremiah's heart. There's a few more times that God has to tweak his heart. But that's okay because he does that with us all the time, doesn't he? And we're not prophets like Jeremiah. Fine-tunes us. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's painful. But the end result is the joy of the Lord. For as Nehemiah 8 verse 10 says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Keeping ourselves in the love of Christ, keeping ourselves in the Word of God, and keeping ourselves in the very heart of God with a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory, as Paul says, will be to us the strength of our lives until the day of Jesus Christ. We have much to learn from the prophet, from the prophet Jeremiah, who I'm thankful that we're learning these things. I'm thankful that we're learning what God does with broken hearts. You see, Jeremiah was a broken-hearted man, but still struggled with the Lord, didn't he? If we struggle with the Lord honestly, God will answer. Just accept the answer if even the answer is silent. Because God still knows you better than you know yourself and he loves you more than you'll ever know. Let's pray.